And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with special guest Liza Trumby and occasional kibitzing from Daryl Gregory on the Coot Street Podcast! That was fast. That was really fast talking. I don't know if I can talk that fast, Jonathan, but the reason we're talking this fast is because any minute now, the, the annual February year-in-review issue of Locus magazine will hit the airwaves stand yeah. i don't know I, yeah i don't know the bandwidth I don't know. what what does it hit but yes it's about to come out oh my and God. it'll be dust. it'll be dots and stuff so, the thing is and and i i i have written a, a year in review column and and jonathan has written one and but liza as far as i know you're probably the only one who's read all of our year in review columns jonathan has too mm-hmm. so the question is what's the consensus wasn't it the best year ever? <laughs> well, I think honestly, the sorry, my child just gave me a cookie. Which she <laughs> that sounds like twenty twenty. <laughs> I know she's she's a, she's she's discovered baking. Um, I think the surprising, like every single year in review, started with this was a terrible year, and it was really hard to read, and yet somehow I still read some books. And I think the big surprise actually for twenty twenty is that. Publishing held its own and it put books, really good books out and, and authors, I mean, I think we're, we are in this year uh, benefiting from the fact that publishing takes a year or two <laughs> to get a book out. So the books that we saw this year weren't the books that are being generated in 2020. I, I don't know if 2021 is going to be rough, actually, because of that. But um, I think the, the surprise is that there were really good books, like that we actually had an all right year. And, and people are so excited about it. Yeah. See, to me, the counterintuitive thing is that book sales overall were up, right? I mean, yeah. if you look across, if you look across publishing as a whole, you would have assumed that with retailers closing for shutdowns and all this other kind of thing, that would be down. And yet, it's it's sort of I think what is it like overall up about nine or ten percent across all print and ebook publishing. Ebooks up, ebooks were up more than that. So it's, I think it's the best book sales in half a decade or more, well, which really seems counterintuitive, right? Well, but e- I, I mean, I think at the beginning, everyone was like, oh, we're all going to like, thank goodness books are ebooks and you can just get them wherever. And, and then there was the, oh my gosh, nobody can actually read during this and how we survive. But it, it turned, you know, it, it came around, it started to normalize uh, living in pandemic. And, and then I think people really did start reading and, when ebooks are profitable, yeah. they are less shipping, you know. And we had this paper shortage in uh, the end of twenty twenty, or sorry, the end of twenty nineteen. There was a big paper shortage coming out of China, which actually was starting to affect stuff. And then the beginning of twenty twenty, there was the pandemic, and then there was a one of the major printers went down with a um, because their employees got sick, and so things yeah. were kind of bleak. For a moment there, but then I think really ebook sales. But but it wasn't ebook sales that, that, that carried us, right? I mean, uh, print book sales were up to seven hundred and fifty-one million in the U.S. in twenty twenty. I don't know, but I think, uh, I think that was in the, uh, more in the second half of the year because that's when people really were like, "We got to figure out how to make this work, right?" We're going to live to some degree. I mean, yeah, it's, it's everybody going online and buying online, right? I mean, to some degree. The, the weird thing is that I mean, some of it's what you would expect from what I, have, what I looked at, which is that it's things like parents buying nonfiction for kids because they're all studying at home, people trying to do self improvement, so they're learning extra languages. So it's you know books that teach you how to speak Italian or French or something. 
but genres still did well. I mean, well, I think your, I, the point I, you started off. I think yeah. Thor had a banner year. That's about the only publish. Like I haven't been talking as much to the publishers, like I said earlier before we started recording, um, because the conventions are all dead. And that's really where I see people since we're on the West Coast. But um, I did talk to Beth Meacham a couple of times before she retired. And I talked to other people and I know Tours had a really good year. And I, and I think actually the other publishers are doing well also. I don't, I haven't heard from anyone that they're really struggling. That, that's consistent with what, what, I, what I heard. Yeah. I mean, when I was talking to editors at some of the major publishing houses, the, the New York publishing houses, they've all had good to very good years, particularly if they're in genre fiction or, or one or two other areas. So, you know, it's the tours, your. Right. It's not that much of a surprise that escapism would be in right now. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, well, that's but, a question. Okay. But is it escapism that's driving this? Because one of the things that occurred to me about this year, uh, only minutes before we started recording this, so I haven't run this, is that uh, uh, to a lot of, to a great extent, science fiction seemed to me this past year began behaving more like literature and less like a commercial enterprise. And my, my example of that is this. Uh, two of the big books of the year, at the beginning of the year and again at the end of the year, were by senior writers in the field. One was uh, uh, William Gibson, um, the agency novel, the second peripheral. And at the end of the year, toward the end of the year, we got uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry of the Future. Okay, these are two senior writers in the field writing stuff which is as adventurous and original. If I go back to go back 20 or 30 years, and the senior writers in the field were people like Asimov and Heinlein and Clark. Heinlein was writing self-indulgent sermons. Asimov and Clark were returning to their greatest tits and putting stuff together. They were they were dealing with their senior years as commercial writers with commercial properties. And it seems to me that now the senior writers in the field, by which I could name any number of people besides uh, besides uh, Robinson and um, and and Gibson. Gibson are much more, they're, they're taking themselves, they're writing the most ambitious things they've ever written. Uh, M. John Harrison's another example. So so the, the, the field itself is treating itself more like literature, and I think the diversity issue is part of this, and less like a set of commercial promises. Yeah. No, I think, um, I mean, I think that's true. I think, and I, and I actually think that's, you know, it's not terrible. We definitely swing from sort of literary, the literary side of things to the more commercial side of things, but we're not like it, we're not going to stop having com- a heavy commercial segment of genre work. Mm-hmm. So having that, I think having the, the these sort of staples of the genre really stretch is good because I, when people sort of ease back and rest on their laurels and they're just, they're working to their strengths and they're not taking those risks anymore. I do think we lose, especially these guys that can really write and really come up with interesting ideas. I don't think that, I don't think it necessarily was just the past year, but over the past several years. And I think people started talking about this with Le Guin, who looks like it's going to get a United States. She's going to get a United States postage stamp. She helped set the standard. I mean, there was a point in her career where she somebody could have said to Le Guin, and they may have, I don't know, why don't you go back and write, let's say, The Right Hand of Darkness, and it'll be a big seller, and everybody will buy it, 
Like, do you have another one of those in you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> did you know Donata Giancola actually did the portrait for the stamp too, which I think is a double win for us. Oh, so. great. That's terrific. Nice. See, when I look at book publishing for the year, I think like it's weird because I think it's not just escapism that's driven it. There's been home trends, other trends. The kind of books that are being published also map to the political concerns of the time, which you'd hope. There's a rise in uh, pub, you know, fiction related to, to the Anthropocene, all that kind of thing. There's a strong kick up in, a, it seems like, in acquisitions of books that are related to the uh, whole Black Lives Matter move, movement. And even though they are one predates, one postdates, two of the best books of the year are very much in that space in Toshi Onyabuchi's uh, Riot Baby and um, uh, P. Jelly, Clark. Jelly Clark's uh, sto- you know, uh, Ring Shout. Uh, given that, I mean, given the book sales were up, that it was a really, I don't know how you felt, Liza, reading or writing and reporting the news week by week. It seemed though it was, it was such a volatile year for everything else. Small presses, some of them went out of business. Magazines went out of business. Uh, a lot of independent bookstores uh, were pushed to the limit because of what was happening. I mean, it was like, it, I think it was like, I mean, to me, if, when I summarize, I think it was like a really good year for things on the page. And I actually think 2021 is going to be quite a good year for, for words on the page as well. Yeah for a variety of reasons. And 2022 sounds like it's in good shape from what I hear. But in terms of sales and everything else, I mean, we're in this situation where there are fewer avenues to sell books. You know, I mean, publishers are amalgamating. Amazon's influence on retail is growing. It's getting a larger share of the book market. So that's concerning. I guess what I'd be interested to ask you is, you're a magazine publisher, it's been a pretty shaky year for magazine publishers overall, hasn't it? Oh my gosh! Well, no, I think it's a it's a terrible time for magazines. I mean, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> it's you know in the in the magazine summary, I think um, there were like ten magazines we didn't cover because they either had one episode or one issue, or even podcasts or uh, online magazines, they had one episode, one issue. And then they said, yeah, we can't do this. Um, a lot of people who stepped down because they needed to deal with family and personal issues, people who stepped down because of health. And it was, I mean, I do think that the magazine industry was is already been sort of stretched to its limits as far as, you know, you've got editors who are working for free, uh, people who are generally underpaid. Magazines don't generate enough income to actually pay a staff. Um, you know, it's lucky if they can pay their contributors well enough. And so then you add on all of these extra stressors. If people are volunteering their time, they can't necessarily do that anymore. Or if they are, um, you know, people are losing their jobs and they were kind of self-funding things. It's, it's. I think it's been a terrible year for Megan, <clears throat> honestly. Yeah. That said, there were a couple of new ones um, that we talk about in the magazine summary, but it's not... It's, you know, for all that we want to have, and we do have a really vibrant short fiction market. It's not, it's not a good time for it. It's not a good business model still. And so like pretty much everyone is relying on donations instead of subscriptions, except for the, you know, Asimov's and Adelog have a penny press. They have the Dow, uh, they have a parent company mm-hmm. And um, FNSF is still holding in there, hanging in there, but it's, it's everybody else is relying on donations, including Lucas, right? Like we pull in a big chunk of our income from donations at this point. 
Is there any newsstand market left for magazines? Yes, it's pretty slim. I mean, you know, there's Books a Million and there's Barnes and Nobles. Um, and then there are some small bookstores. But like half our small bookstores shut down. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and people were, you know, a lot of the bookstores will be like, I have, you know, for here's specifically Locust, they'll be like, I have 12 people that come in and buy Locust every month. So I want 12 issues. Mm. <laughs> oh, you know, and that is. That's a thing, right? And we're happy to do that. But it's not, that's not how you grow. Like, do they even want to sell it to anybody other than those 12 people? Because, like, we need 50 copies on their shelf so that people, yeah. ooh, well, we want to buy that magazine. Or at least if they're selling 12, we should have 24 on their shelf. Like, we should have 50% sell through so that we're getting but then, print. But, but it's but, not happening. But then looking over, yeah. No, I was just going to say, nobody wants to order anything extra. Yeah. See, what I was going to say was, looking over time, though, newsstand sales for fiction magazines, which are the ones we've primarily been concerned with when we talk about the magazine summary in Locus in my time, they have primarily not been newsstand focused, even though newsstand has been useful. And I know that when you look at, say, the, you talk about the Penny Press magazines, Asimov's and Analog, and to some degree FNSF, though they don't report information quite the same way, their subscriptions have been their core, haven't they? Uh, generally they have had a, a lot more subscriptions. It's trickier now because a lot of, the, um, you know, Asimov and Analog are on, uh, doing Amazon subscriptions now. And so it's a, it's changed the game there, I think a lot. Um, now I'm trying to actually get to the magazine summary thing so I can look at it. You, yeah, but you have like Analog has 18,000 subscriptions and 2000 newsstand sales. Yeah. Right. So that's, mm -hmm. and Asimov's have 16 and two, you know, FNSF has five and one and we have three and 400. So we have like almost no newsstand sales at this point, but yeah. really hard to get your, to, to be, to find new readers, um, at least physical magazine readers, unless you're on a newsstand. Well, I guess I was going to say that was the next thing I was going to, in fact going to say was the great challenge in some ways is finding ways to promote your magazine that will be meaningful to people so you can find the readers that you need to make the whole thing work. That seems to be the preeminent challenge in the magazine sphere. You can find the fiction, the content, and there's some great magazines being published. Yeah. But actually, you know, finding a way out there, I mean, it seems to me that a magazine like Uncanny in some ways has a model that seems fitted for the, the part of the 21st century we're in because it's about, you know, having a, a core cadre of people who are feel deeply connected to your, your enterprise and who stay with you and who buy the magazine and go on the Kickstarter, all that kind of thing. And for other places where the bonds are weaker, it's harder. When they do the thing, like they, they have the fundraiser and then they run the budget out from there, but it's still not, they're still not paying their, their editors. No, like, no. And that, that has to have another job. <laughs> like, and, and so, but, and it changes, that really changes it. Like every other part of publishing, people are getting paid. And by the way, if you sell a story to any of these magazines, you will be on their fundraising list forever. So it's like going, it's like going to a college and you pay them a lot of money for a degree, and then they still want more. They want more money after you leave. It's like, it's like going to a magazine is like you're now you're a donor. You're, you're like you're yeah, right. I'm writer alumnus, and you've been marked for uh, an easy hit. 
<laughs> but that's true of all magazines. I mean, one of the things that the, and and Locus certainly has a a, a base of loyal readers. Uh, I'm a loyal reader. The magazine, uh, I, the mainstream magazine, I probably subscribe to longer than anything else is the New Yorker. I just look my copy. And if I were to buy a single copy on the newsstand, it's nine dollars. Uh, I'm not going to start. I'm not going to pick up an occasional thing from. If I started thinking that I was spending nine dollars a week on the New Yorker, I'd I'd go nuts. But the subscription makes it painless, and I think that model actually has been around for decades. It's only recently that the online component of it has become a major part of the the financial plan. But they're still relying on advertising, and advertising is still down. 75% in print media right now, like across yeah. the country. So there's, it, it, they're struggling too, and they're managing it differently. Well, and every magazine I've noticed is making a deal with the devil with Apple News and Google News. So New Yorker, for example, started showing up in Apple News. New Yorker pulled out of Apple News because they're giving away content for free and then hoping that they'll get some... Do they still paywall? Like, do they count? Uh, yeah. Washington Post, for example, paywalls on Google News, like that you get a certain number... Five, um, yeah, right. But Apple News, their model is different, which is everything not marked as Apple News, like pay extra for, every article is supposedly free. And Washington Post, for example, releases several stories per, per month. And New Yorker started releasing uh, articles. Um, but it's, it all, it's almost like a loss leader or something that will be really viral and clicky, and they're hoping that will lead to lead people to the actual magazine. Right. Right, and and in case of New York, they've all start they've also started doing a lot of breaking news and a lot of political stuff, and most of the free stuff up front is that. Um, so if you want if if you want to read a New Yorker short story, you've still got to get the magazine. Right. Yeah. Right, and that's that's it. I mean, everybody's trying to figure out what like mixture of of free content and paid content or restricted content, and uh, you know, our whole model is. Sorry, our whole model is that we have the print and the digital magazine, everybody, and it goes out on the first, mm-hmm. and then the content goes up over the next two months. And the, and the reviews don't go up for at least 30 days. Um, so if you were really wanted reviews, you would get the magazine, right? If you wanted when they happen. Um, and and we do, you can, the the only thing that the publishers can do to affect their reviews is not whether or not their books get reviewed, but they can buy an extra expedited review called a quick post review. You can, your already reviewed book, you can get the review online fast, but that's our, you know, and it, but it's, it's, it's a long tail of little tiny pieces. It is insane. There's some books like that just have a life over the course of their career. Like I was talking to Stan Robinson about the Mars books are perennials for him. Um, we'll keep discovering them and keep coming back to the Mars books, and they, they, they keep selling, and it's by far his most popular thing, and he keeps finding his audience. I have a book that tanked, tanked hard when it came out, had a terrible, vague cover, um, but it kept showing up on zombie literary zombie list books. <laughs> and it sell, every Halloween, I get another sales bump, and it's like you... But when it tanked, I was basically fired from Del Rey because they're like, "Well, this is the last book we can do for you." Um, but you, so it's it's such a crapshoot. No one really. You're still really eating knows. out on it. I mean, you go to a hot dog stand, but you're eating out. Yeah, I'm eating out. <laughs> I can get good. I can get a three dollar brat out of that book. Yeah, well, let's 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 not follow too far along that line of eating out on a zombie book. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I guess sort of eating out kind of segues slowly back in a way because we've had this weird year because we're talking about the year in review. Had this weird year where it was kind of good for some parts of book publishing. It was mostly bad for most parts of book selling. And it was wildly erratic and quite at times quite dramatic for uh, the magazine trade. But, I mean, you started off by saying this, Liza, the stuff that was published was good. Now, we find ourselves, as it happens, I mean, as we record here, it's the morning of January the 31st, where you are, it's the evening of January the 30th. On February the 1st, you will push out the February issue of Locus into the world. It will launch the 50th Locus Awards. And we will eventually pick the novels that will join the, the very first best novel winner, Ringworld, as the novel of the uh, as as the best novels of the year. So, since you've read the reviews, since you've got the actual recommended reading list that nobody else has seen, without you know sort of preempting it too much, what uh, do do you have a feel for what the titles that got the most attention were? What the kind of things that were happening on the page? were, you know, were in 2020? Um, I, I mean, in some ways it was, it was like any other year. There was the sort of usual suspects who got attention for their books um, in the way that we sort of expect them to get attention for their books. And then there were some newcomers um, that I think were sort of exciting. I do think there was a very strong literary bent in a lot of what we saw. Um, people sort of stepped up their game in some ways. Um, and, and I do think there's been a lot of support for diversity in the field. And we're seeing that as a, in the, in what people reviewed and what people they enjoyed and what they put on the list. So, I mean, I think people will be happy. It's a good, it's a good list. There's my own, um, to be red pile has grown immensely because I didn't <laughs> enough and reading everyone's um, year in review essays kind of leaves me um, chomping at the bit to do a lot of reading, honestly. But um, no, I think it's, I think it's, I think people will be happy with it. I don't know. Okay. I don't know how much I should give away or not. Give away. Well, well, maybe to sort of, you know, Keep the, the the recommended reading list behind closed doors for another twenty four or forty eight hours. Oh, I, let me ask you: assuming that everybody's going to listen to this podcast within twenty four to forty eight hours, which I would love to think is true, but the fact is, a lot of people are going to be listening to us after the February issue is available. Right. Um, I, mean, I guess my question is: Did you were there any surprises? And by surprises, all and I don't know what the answer to this is. I was surprised one of the books I liked most at the beginning of the year, uh, going back to early 2020, was The Vanished Bird, Simon Jimenez. And, and I, I didn't hear a lot of discussion about it afterwards. I still think it's a terrific novel. Did that get a lot of attention? Or did, did it, is it one of those things that seemed to make a splash and then fade away during the year? Um, I don't know. I mean, I saw I saw a lot of hype about it, and then I saw you love it. Uh-huh. I do. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that uh, honestly... It, as far as my position as as locus editor in chief, like that's that's all I need, right? Um, but it's uh, I haven't seen since the beginning of the year really a lot about it. It's hard to see someone that you haven't seen before, and and they appear and then they kind of disappear until something else comes, you know, back around. So, well, that's what I mean. Well, I suppose one thing's worth talking about at this point is the books that are featuring on the recommended reading list are the the choices of 
readers, reviewers, critics who are within the broader circle of locus. They're either reviewing in the magazine or they're part of a broader panel. So does that give you a particular critic's bent for what initially makes the list? You know, I mean, do you find, for example, I mean, Gary name-checked them earlier, and I know that I would, you know, uh, Kim Sandy Robinson's Ministry for the Future, William Gibson's Agency, are the kind of books that are more likely to appear on the list than perhaps more generally populist titles? Uh, I do. I think that that is is somewhat true for for our group of, of reviewers. Um, I think I think that there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of really commercially successful fiction out there. It's not, sure. And there's nothing. That's not something that's. But it's not, a lot of times they they're like really long running series, or mm-hmm. they are specifically military science fiction. And while we cover military science fiction, we don't have a lot of reviewers that cover military science fiction. So, um, you know, and it's so I think that those sort of more core science fiction names who are doing really fine work are going to get noticed. I think a lot of yeah. the heavily commercially like commercial series. We just don't have as many people that are reading it. I mean, one of I think one of the job hazards of being a reviewer is you read so much that you really value, and it's not across the board, but I see this a lot. They reviewers really value seeing something new and exciting because it is so hard to find yeah. something that's new that's and true. exciting. So even with reviewers who are like, "Yes, I'm reading that series," but I don't want to write a v- review of it because I don't. It's it's episodic. It's you know, it's my my happy books that I read because I know what I'm going to get and I get it every single time. And it's a hard thing to write a review for. Um, and so what the reviewers really want to write reviews for, things that are new and exciting and, and doing something different or doing it just so well that it's astounding. And so the commercial works, which can be comfort, they can be the sort of the comfort food of reading sometimes, I think, and, and not, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a hugely important part of our field. Um, it's not necessarily where re- reviewers, what reviewers want to write about all the time. Now, so we do. Well, I certainly think, it, best, yeah. you know, I certainly think it's challenging to write about books that are written at the traditional core of the field, if you like. You know, if you have a traditional, say, space adventure, which is the lifeblood of science fiction in many ways, um, unless there's something dramatically new done with it, it's hard to find something to say. But like I notice, for example, I mean, looking at the earlier iterations, if not the final list, that say two of the more for- formally uh, adventurous books published during the year, which were, you know, the Stan Robinson book we've talked about and Mike Harrison's novel, The Sunken Lands Begin to Rise Again, both did well with reviewers and actually also did well with readers, which is encouraging, um, which suggests that there is, you know, there, there is a strong readership for adventurous science fiction. Did you see, I mean, I, I've got strong I've got my own thoughts on this, but did you see anything happening in, in what you read and what you heard other people reading about and looking through the year and years and review discussions? any kind of predominant changes or developments in the kind of themes and issues that science fiction was talking about and fantasy was talking about at the moment, or is that very much from where you were sitting a, a, a smooth continuation of what we'd seen happening in recent years? No, I, I, yeah, I think the latter, I think it's really, um, you know, we see more different kinds of relationships where there are relationships and things and there's, you know, there's less, uh, I think that the the bounds of what kind, the, what the cast of characters and what the cultures that people come from, and all of these things that 
happen where, where people interact. I think we're continuing down the continuum of it just gets to be as expansive as you can imagine, um, as opposed to landing in a more sort of, you know, traditional, this is, this is what we think people should be doing kind of thing. And so, and I think that's, but I don't think it's a sudden thing. I think we are seeing like we have a lot more international works. Um, and I think that those are interesting to reviewers and readers because they do, um, they, give people who are international readers the chance to see more published works with their own uh, experiences in them. And they give mm-hmm. people who are here, and when I say that, I mean in the States, chance to see what other people are experiencing in different places or experiencing here uh, is as immigrants or as diaspora. And like, there's all of these different ways to experience life. And so I think that we're, but we're just continuing to see an expansion. Of that. Can, I, can I say one thing about the Stan Robinson book? It seems like the world is finally caught up to Kim Stanley Robinson and that the mainstream <laughs> is ready to hear this stuff that he's been writing about for decades. Um, like just the, like he, like there was a great conversation between Stan and Ezra Klein on his podcast and Ezra Klein's now uh, just switched over from Vox to uh, the New York times as a podcaster um, talking in detail about all the different uh, proposals in ministry of the future. And it seems like, the, like even though he's been talking about this stuff, the mainstream world is ready to finally think, oh, my God, we're in deep trouble. <laughs> we need someone to tell us what to do. And Stan has been waiting there. I mean, and he's got enough gravitas now and, and enough of the longevity that people are listening really deeply to what he's doing. Right. And honestly, all of the ideas that he talks about, the sucking the water out from under the glaciers or like every single idea that he talked about, I think is directly from an idea that is in play research or being extrapolated from by him. Like it, but these are all real ideas and they're all real crises, you know, played in fast forward, however many years, but they're, they're all real. And I think that as terrifying as that may be, it is, it, it is the moment when people are really trying to take that seriously. Well, certainly it feels like to me that more than at any other time I can remember the concerns that I'm reading about in science fiction and fantasy are directly in step with the concerns in the world around us. You know, if you were to look around the world right now, now it seems to me, to me superficially at least, that the biggest issues we're concerned about are climate, race, sex and gender, uh, income inequality, and private, you know, pri- you know, privacy and information control, and those were the subjects that dominated the fiction that I saw being published. It was getting a lot of conversation. So it seems like there's that sense that it's really in lockstep. And you're right. I think that the work, the, the things that that Stan Robinson has been talking about since The Wild Shore was published in 1984 are exactly in step with what he's talking about in the Ministry of the Future, even though it's an incredibly impactful book in a way that The Wild Shore, which is a good book, isn't. Um, seems insanely timely now, finally, and the world is really ready to consume that, you know, to, to, to hear that and to hear other similar things. And I think that's why it ties in. The only thing you're missing on that list is AI. But, yeah. AI in the, no, no, AI. but AI. on the list, we saw a lot right. of AI. And it, is, oh, right. and it is becoming, like I heard a commercial, when we heard a commercial today, like, uh, you know, business enterprise solutions using AI. Like we heard some commercials. AI has become a marketing term right? for anything. <laughs> That's particularly well coded. Um, but I will, I mean, 
Gary, I wanted to ask this question of Gary. So for me, this feels like what science fiction must have felt like in the late sixties, early seventies, when the with the new wave where the where the finger of science fiction was on the pulse of what was happening in the culture, and you were seeing like all the experimentation with with sex and race and alternate ways of telling a story. And then we had the kind of doldrums of the eighties and nineties where it the, and in fact, that was most of the science fiction I was reading, you know, mm-hmm. up through high school. And it seemed kind of just sort of staid and boring. But now it seems. My sense is that the same thing happened uh, in terms of culture catching up with science fiction's ways of looking at the world. That probably happened in the 60s and 70s. You're right. In the 60s, everybody was reading uh, J.G. Ballard, for example. But it wasn't until, what, the late 70s and 80s that Ballard became a mainstream figure. He became a mainstream literary figure. There was a movie, there was a Spielberg movie based on one of his novels, and, and, and suddenly he's a literary figure. I mean, in, in his own way, and he was writing about weird environmental apocalypses back in the 60s, and eventually became a literary mainstream writer, much as Stan Robinson has now. Uh, it also adds a kind of footnote to something you were saying uh, earlier, Liza, about commercial fiction, because in their own way, writers like Stan Robinson and, and, and Bill Gibson are commercial writers. It's just that their commercial core is not within the old-fashioned science fiction commercial establishment. It's when it's within the mainstream commercial establishment. Yeah. The, the, I will say I, one of the I things- have to interject. Okay. I have to interject and disagree with Darrow. You can't be dissing the 80s like that. <laughs> I, just, I knew that was you coming. You just can't. In the 80s, you've got, you've no, you did have, have you did have cyberpunk. You, no, come on. no, the, the 80s are the most tumultuous decade in science fiction that's totally overlooked for, for being so. It is the great time of change between what comes before and what comes after. It's where you see the, the bloat that's come up from the bestseller mid 70s, which has amplified all of the worst trends of the history of science fiction coming up and falling flat, and you see the end of the careers of major writers, you know, whether it's Heinlein or, or Asimov or Clark or uh, Fred Pohl or whoever else, uh, or Frank Herbert, and then along comes, like in a burst, you know, Stan Robinson and Bill Gibson and Bruce Sterling and no, Pat Cadigan, all these people. It's an incredible time. No, you're absolutely right, but you have to understand where I'm coming from as a, as a high school and college student reading science fiction. What I was reading was the, the the bloated corpse of science fiction. So I was reading, you know, what Gary was talking about earlier, where, you know, Arthur C. Clarke is basically doing victory laps, doing another version of 2001, 2010, whatever. Um, there was, you know, there was giant fat fantasies that went nowhere. And I won't name them, but I've met some of these people. They're very nice people, but there was nothing to read. Um, Asimov coming back to Foundation, doing endless robot books. It was like, it just seemed like the big sellers were, were sucking the life out of you. And, and yes, there were these people coming up that were burbling up underneath that. But, young it, but I didn't, time. but I was not seeing them until I... Uh, went to Clarion in 88 and I started discovering, like people started handing me the right books to read. And then I was like, oh, these people are out there. Pat Cadigan's writing great stuff. You know, Stan was one of my teachers and like he was like, he was bursting out with all of his big stuff then. I mean, so it was, it feels like the, it was like Thatcherism. It was like, there was, there was a bloated corpse sitting, oppressing all the writers 
And then art artistry just sort of bursts out of it. And I'll probably be it's probably overstep my bounds in the metaphor. <laughs> I'm trying to think how to respond to that. It's um... <laughs> Well, actually, because some of it ties in with that in a way. We're talking about you know, a little bit of historical change. To what extent, and I'll start addressing this to Liza, I guess, just as a kickoff. Uh, to what extent do you think this process of year and reviews and whatever else has a, a, a value in in terms of keeping track of what's happening in the field? Is it, I mean, there's an innate value in it. If, if all it was was a reading list for people to go out and get good books, that would be more than enough. But do you see value in attempting to understand the field as it's happening? Because it looks different looking back. <laughs> <laughs> is it, is it, you're, you're asking us whether our careers as reviewers, which is century, is a complete waste of time. Of course it is. No, no. But I mean, sure, sure. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm saying actually is, okay, let me put it to you, to you then, since I asked the question, I'll answer the question, and then you can disagree if you like. And that is, I think it's innately useful. I think uh, there is value in synopsizing the year and trying to understand what happened. I think it is actually one of the places, these these kind of conversations, and they happen everywhere, and a lot, whether they happen in Locus and it's a year in review, whether it happens in the pages of uh, Year's Best, whether it happens in uh, the various year-end lists that are done elsewhere, and whatever. They give a sense of what's happening and us taking stock every year. And I think that has value. It builds the memory of the field and also gets into this conversation issue of whether texts actually do talk with one another and change over time, which I think they do, though maybe not in exactly the way we often imagine they do. So that's what I'm thinking. And I'm wondering, if, I mean, because otherwise you'd have to ask yourself, why do this? I think, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think in the moment, so you, you go, you get the list and there's a whole bunch of books and some of them you've seen and then some of them you haven't seen. And then you read what the reviewers really were cared about, right? Like what would really affected them in the year. And so you get some of the books that are on the list and you get some books that aren't on the list because everybody puts in their books and then we end up with the top whatever, right? The top books. So you get, but you get this, this, um, this expansion on just the list. Like the, you know, these were the ones that did this. These were the ones that did this for me. Um, you have your favorite reviewers and you can go to them and you can see what they really felt like, uh, you know, there's 26 books in science fiction. There's 26 books in fantasy. And if you are like most, like everybody has their reviewers they bond with, right. You can go and read your reviewer and see what they actually um, felt the strongest about. But then 10 years later, you could go back and look at this, having uh, the experience of whatever publishing's done and whatever the author's done and what they've come out with since then, and go back and see what that book felt like in the moment. And 20 years later, and like being able to do that, I think is actually, is really cool, for lack of a better word. Like I think the fact that you could go back to 1990 and see what people really thought about these books when they were coming out in 1987, you know, when these books were I, I just out. like who people miss. <laughs> that gives you hope <laughs> but i think but i think there is like there's that um that little bit of microscopic detail of the year of the moment that in in five or ten years we won't remember this as well and but we can actually go back and see the record of it and i I think there's a lot of value well, i think that's true and i think one of the points i tried to make in last year's column when i was talking about uh 
last year I discovered that I've been reviewing a lot more international books, a lot more books, a lot more BIPOC books, a lot of books by uh, by women than I had been 10 years earlier. That wasn't anybody's choice, but it's a question of which books are available, which books come to people's attention. Uh, there are always classics that nobody paid any attention to in the year they came out. And, you know, as, as a reviewer, I'm kind of haunted by the fact that by far the best science fiction novel last year is one that I haven't heard of yet. And <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all haunted by that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like like last week. Never mind last year. <laughs> but I mean, looking back on ten years ago, this is kind of what we were talking about. And it's a little bit what what Daryl was talking about of what seems like a drought to somebody, seems like a renaissance to somebody else of a slightly different age. I find when I talk to younger readers, there are still people who go back and discover, let's say, uh, the Foundation trilogy, and they understand what the big deal is. But I don't find any younger readers going back and discovering foundation and empire and thinking robots and empire, th those things struck me as being only commercial right. ideas at the time. So what, what's, what's a, people still go back and read Neuromancer as though it were uh, completely new. And in many ways, it does seem completely new. And in other ways, it seems even more surreal and bizarre because of the stuff <laughs> it doesn't think about, uh, like cell phones, for example. Right. 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 I admire people who, um, like, like one of my favorite books this year, was uh, by Force Alone by Levi Tidhar yeah. because it's like it's a take on Arthurian stuff, which is an evergreen. You know, Arthurian legend stuff yeah. is gonna, every year. There's going to be a rash rash of books, um, but but nobody had thought of doing it as Goodfellas until <laughs> you know, like oh, they're all made men, like they're they're all running a scam, and they're he uses all the phrase made men. Yeah, yeah, he does, and it's and it was like. It just one thing I really appreciated was it's that even though there are these ongoing tropes in science fiction that seem dead, dead, dead to me, somebody good can turn them around and right. and make them new again and, and do a new take. And I think that's the real gain of like all the international takes. It's like mm -hmm. let's take a trope like like uh, time travel, or let's take the oldest clones. Let's and let's 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 make it queer. Let's make it international and see what happens. Right. I mean, and it's true. Like, and we do that. Like in the office, we're like, oh yeah, that's what we needed. Another book about Merlin. But then someone will do it. <laughs> right? Right. Someone will actually <laughs> about Merlin, or or you know, or whatever it is. Like we needed, like we needed another book about zombies. But like we, and then somebody does it, and yeah. and that's a it's a real measure. of, uh, skill at that point. A and of course, you know, you realize it's sort of, you know, can I tolerate another one of these things? And uh, in terms of looking forward to 2021, which is obviously, you know, the rest of 2021, which is something we all do as, as readers, as reviewers, I see that, you know, the next of these uh, Lavi Tidhar books is Robin Hood. <laughs> yes. Mm. And you're like, yeah, I'm going like, it, it's a book called The Hood. Which probably tells you everything you need to know about it. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> My iPad right now, it's, it's it's amazing. You have it. Oh, see, this is why everybody hates us, Daryl. Livy <laughs> and, uh, and I are pals. I'm like, you have to hand me this book now. He emailed. Me. <laughs> <laughs> but Livy is an interesting writer in the sense that he also pointedly references older and classic science fiction. He goes back and. Uh, in, in the Central Station stories, he goes back oh, to Gilmore's yes. Chamblot, and you mentioned By Force Alone, which is 
turns into roadside picnic to 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 the way. Yes. <laughs> no, he's he, th- th- and this is one of the pleasures of, and this is so there were people these people who break out into the mainstream, and um, and you could read them, but you realize when you're if you're reading them as an insider, as a science fiction person, all the books that they're in conversation with. And so you have to admire people who break out, even though people aren't getting all the references. Hmm. Um, but he's also referencing, you know, Arthurian legend at this point. Like his his afterward on By Force Alone is a great essay on the the evolution of the Arthur legend. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's basically all fanfic from the beginning. Yeah, it was all like, and this is a person they made up, and this is a person who. Like, it's like a bunch of writers. It's, you know, it's like Dante making up purgatory. It's like, it's, you, you just realize that, oh, uh, this, this, this is a conversation among writers. Other people can dip in and, and, uh, you know, and appreciate it. But really the writers are sort of just sort of amusing themselves. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's speaking to you as, as, as a writer, there's a sense in which, uh, you know that not everybody, not every reader is going to pick up on a particular illusion that you're dealing with. Um, but you're going to do it anyway because somebody will. Yes. And I have a, I have a mom rule. Uh, like for, for instance, my mom rule is my mom has to be able to follow the plot and understand why people want what they want and why they're trying to do what they want. But everything else, um, she doesn't have to get. But it's there, and I'm really happy if someone notices, but it's but she has to under, she has to enjoy the story at the story level. At the story level, yeah. exactly. And I think that's one of the things that goes on with uh, with the classic science fiction themes you mentioned, for example, or fantasy themes, Arthurian, uh, alien invasion stories, Generation Starship stories. One of the things that expanding the range of science fiction to other cultural approaches does is you can reinvent those things from a a new perspective. In other words, you can write an alien invasion story from the point of, like Nnedi Okorafor did from the point of view of Lagos or like Tade Thompson did. Uh, and it's a completely different thing when it emerges uh, in London and then in Nigeria. And, and you're not rehashing War of the Worlds, which at a, at a certain time, it seemed like the only way to write an alien invasion story was to write another version of War of the Worlds. That's not true. Uh, depending on what you mean by the world. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, I, I think I actually think we're really benefiting from the expansion of where who's who's publishing, who's publishing whom. I think we're gonna we're getting a a real like it, it may be its own renaissance, honestly, just because we're just getting all these different viewpoints that were not invited into the field before, and I think that it's. It's it's a good thing. I think I know it, that every, there's some struggle around it. Like there's some longtime authors who feel pushed out, and and there's some political stuff going on. But I do think in the end, we're just it's going to be a healthier field because of it. One of the things. Well, I guess I, that that kind of sorry, go ahead, Gary. I was just going to one of kind of parentheses to that. One of the things I noticed in reading a lot of international anthologies of Korean science fiction and South Asian science fiction and Israeli science fiction, each of these anthologies would include a few stories that were really not very good Im- imitations of American science fiction. And then you could see as almost each of these had a kind of historical thing, you could see as the as, as Korean or Israeli or uh, or South Asian themes began to be incorporated, that science you could see science fiction transforming itself in 
with these different cultural inputs. Uh, but there was a sense in almost all these anthologies that a lot of these writers started with what we think of as the classic old-fashioned American science fiction trope. Right. Well, and, it, and it goes through so many different filters. Like my son, is um, he's writing comic reviews and he's writing anime reviews. And and he's also a uh, – he's a – Gary will be happy about this. Like he's a he's in the master's program at University of Chicago in history, right? Really? Now. Um, and he's um, but his his filters are all um, most of the things he reads and consumes are dubbed and translated. <laughs> and and there and and the funny thing is is like he will talk about well this is the things they took from American science fiction and American animation. Then it got filtered through this, and then here's where it comes out the other side. And then, like sometimes, there's American people who are doing takes on on anime and manga that also got filtered through science fiction. So there's it's what what like is that where you translate something and then you translate it back and then you translate it. Yeah, back and, and it's like yeah, it's <laughs> translate of of exactly, and it's the what was it a phrase the ecstasy of influence, and that things keep getting refiltered and remixed and refiltered, and it's and tell your son I'd be glad to take him out for a drink if there were any bars open anymore. <laughs> oh right, exactly. He's right there, right down next to the University of Chicago. And oh, and his uh, one of his professors is uh, Ada Palmer. Oh really? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I guess I mean we should sort of wind up a little bit because we've been talking for close to an hour, and that's tend to be to you know to be what we do, do just get in that an hour if we can. The feeling I've, I, I take from the conversation is that for all it was a difficult to map year, it wasn't a bad one, and that at least in terms of what's going onto the page, we're kind of optimistic. There are books to look forward to. There's new writers coming in. There's new perspectives. Does that seem like a fair summary to you all? I think so. I mean, I do think that, that a big nod to how hard the year was and that um, writers were still producing. I mean, I think there needs to be a big nod to that because it's just so, it's so hard for everyone to focus and then to imagine being creative to, to first draft in the mix. Well, let's this. check it in two years because of novels, <laughs> with right. novels publishing pipeline, you know, short stories is slightly shorter, but not much. It's really what it'll, happens it'll, in two years that we'll see what everybody thinks. It'll be the 2023. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> There's a well, actually, drawing room science fiction where everything happens right. in the same room with four people talking. Why is everybody on Zoom all the time? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, let me ask you all, and then we'll sort of wind up. As we sit here in you know the end of January of 2021, is there a book that's uh, coming out in 2021 that you're particularly looking forward to to getting your hands on? Anyone? You, I'll start. <laughs> you go first. I'll start. What do you think? You I can name two. I really want to read the the Hood by Levi Tidhar, and I want to read Revelator, which is Daryl's new book that's coming, a new novel that's coming in August. That's that's totally. That, you're just being nice to the guy who's on the podcast. <laughs> I, I pandered, but you know, fuck it. So, as I've bored you all the time, Gary, since you're you're on, on 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 the thing, is there a book you're particularly looking forward to that you haven't read yet? <laughs> <laughs> this is a cruel question. <laughs> I, <laughs> it shouldn't be given what we do, Gary. Are you still up for this? I've still got things that I know I have to read. I mean, I certainly want to read Jelly Clark's Master of Gin, which comes out not until what May or something like that. There's a new, mm-hmm. there's a new Zen Show novel. I've enjoyed everything I've read by by Zen Show. I have copies of. Uh, I haven't read it yet. I've got copies of the new Jeff Vandermeer novel. Um, 
I've got something which locusts send me. And every, every once in a while, locusts sends me a novel by somebody I've never heard of, and I have no idea what I'm supposed to make of it, by somebody named Courtia Newland called A River Called Hot, mm-hmm. which apparently is an alternate history in which slavery never existed, uh, set in a London. Uh, so I, uh, I've just looked at that. Um, and there are, um, let me try to think what other things are coming out. Uh, but that, 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 that's a list to start with. I mean, it's, uh, oh, I, I, I just did finish reading the Lily Yu novel on Fragile Waves, which is marginally fantastic, fantastic enough that it's certainly worth covering in Locus, but a beautiful and very painful novel. And I'm glad to see her first novel successful. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I got nothing. I honestly, I have to catch up from 2020. Like, <laughs> seriously, like the biggest thing that this work, like doing this issue has done for me has given me a huge list of books I need to read. And I can't even. So you don't. I honestly. You don't get it. That, I can't. You're supposed to abandon that stuff in place and move on. I know, but. But like I didn't read the the uh, Mike Harrison book, and I I, I want to, I would really want to, and I didn't read. Um, she gave it to me, so I got to. Read There's it. so many books that I didn't I didn't read that I really wanted to read. I mean, I read I I read some books that I really enjoyed, and I'm and I'm glad about it. But man, there's so many that I didn't get to. So I I'm like we get through the February issue. Maybe I get to do some reading in the actual February after the issue comes out. And then <laughs> I will start with 2021 and you can talk to me then about it. I sympathize with you, Eliza. And one of the things, and Jonathan and I were both guilty of this a little bit because of the condition we're in. You talk to other reviewers and I talk to, you know, occasionally we'll email with Rich or somebody else. And, and, and somebody mentions the book like, I don't know, uh, let's say, Ring Shout, for example. And somebody else says, for God's sake, that's yesterday's news. That's already out. Um, it's like, you know, when you're reading a couple of months in advance, you begin to realize, wait a minute, on uh, in, in the real world, and uh, about one-fourth of my world is trying to catch up with exactly what Liza said, trying to catch up with the things that you know you should have read. And when I read everybody else's year in review in the, in the, in the Locust February issue, I'm going to feel exactly the same way you do, Liz. I'm going to think, oh, man, I missed that. My column is completely ignorant because all these great books aren't mentioned in it. Well, and at the same time, Agency feels like it came out two years ago to me. So, like, exactly. there's, yeah. I, there's no making sense of, of the timeline no. of books. Yes. What is this catching up that you mean? I don't know what this catching up means. There's just just a long history of books that people said were good that are abandoned back there. Well, yeah, I've still got some John Brunner novels I want to read, so. Right? That's the, uh, 1972. It's the retirement pile. Right. When I retire, I will read all of these. Gary's books. retired and he's still behind. I don't know why <laughs> you're saying <laughs> it's okay. My mind is going. That accounts for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, on that cheery note, Liza Tromby, Daryl Gregory, thank you so much for joining us. I genuinely appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. So much fun. Gary. And until the next time we get together, we're trying to do. Getting uh, old. Hmm, pardon? What? So getting old. I have to prompt you now. I'm prompt. I'm, I'm, I'm doing. I'm, I'm following your prompt. I'm, I'm trying to pick up on the cue. Stop giving me cues in the middle of my picking up on your cues. <laughs> Until we're trying to be on a bi-weekly schedule now. If that means every two weeks, it may mean twice a week. I don't know anymore. <laughs> Until we talk to you again, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. <sighs>